Today is the fourth part of our series on the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And before we read the scripture, I just want to make one comment. I heard a story about the U.S. Treasury Department, and they had a big problem because there were all these counterfeit $20 bills that were flooding the market. They tried to teach bank tellers and merchants how to spot these counterfeit bills, but they were having a lot of trouble because every time they would have their identifying markers, the counterfeiters would get smart and fix that problem, and so they constantly got more and more sophisticated. Finally, the Treasury Department decided to try a whole new approach. They got the bank tellers and the merchants to study a real, genuine $20 bill and to look at it and to memorize everything about it under the theory that when you know the real thing, like the back of your hand, you can spot a phony anytime. When you know the real thing. In this passage we're just about to read, Paul is going to give us kind of a formula for what a real Christian is like, what it looks like to be a real Christian. And there's going to be a few characteristics that we're going to need to examine very closely this morning because we want to be this kind of a person in God's eyes. So here uh, we have, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to focus on the first part of this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... By the way, just a moment. Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome when he wrote this. We talked about this the very first week. This is the last letter he's ever going to write. Right after he writes this, he is executed for treason. And so these are the last words that Paul, he's writing from a Roman jail cell to the church in Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. We can stop there. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Matt Emmons had the gold medal in sight in the rifle shooting event at the Olympics in 2004. He was just one shot away from claiming victory in the 50-meter three-position rifle event. He didn't even need a bullseye to win. His final shot merely had to be on target. Normally, the shot he made on his final shot would have received a score of 8.1, more than enough for a gold medal. But in what was described as an extremely rare mistake in elite competition, Emmons fired at the wrong target. Standing in lane two, he fired at the target in lane three. His score for a great shot on the wrong target, zero. Instead of walking away with the gold medal, he ended up in eighth place. It doesn't matter how accurate you are if you aim at the wrong target. It doesn't work. To use another metaphor, it doesn't matter if you've climbed to the top of the ladder 
if it's leaning against the wrong building. Paul is telling us in this passage some of the qualities that we need to have to live a life that God would be pleased with. He's telling us what it looks like to live a good Christian life. You know, in Paul's letters, he always begins with theology and the good news of the grace of God. And we, we read that in chapter 2 uh, as well, last week as well, that we're saved by grace through faith, he says. It's a free gift. It's just given to us. But then in most of his letters, Paul, about halfway through, turns from theology to ethics. And the question then becomes, how then shall we live? How shall we respond to this grace that God has given to us? Can you imagine being given a gift so wonderful, so incredible, that all you could think of is, how can I be worthy of this gift? How can I possibly show my gratitude and be worthy of this amazing gift? Let's say somebody that you just love horses and somebody gives you a horse. Not just any horse. The horse that won the Kentucky Derby is now your horse. Let's say you love golf. Somebody gives you your own golf course for you to have. Or you're dying of a terrible disease And someone invents a miracle cure that saves your life. How can I be worthy? You would be so motivated to show your gratitude and determination to please the one who gave you the gift, right? Motivation. Determination. In July of this year, I did a very unusual thing. I joined a gym. I know that's shocking. Um... I've exercised my whole life, but I've never done it with supervision, uh, instruction, uh, somebody there telling you what to do. And um, as I filled out the application and signed up for this gym, the young guy, the super buff trainer guy said, uh, he, he sat me down, he said, I'd like to ask you a few questions, Mr. McNabb. He said, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about your body shape? Why do you think I'm here? (laughs) He wanted to know just how dissatisfied I was. How motivated I was going to be. Because these gym folks know that, you know, half the people who join quit within two or three months. Don't even go. It's an amazing thing. He wanted to know if I would be motivated. Paul says that we have to live a life worthy of our calling. We've been, give, we've been called by God, given this great gift of our salvation. So now, live a life worthy of that, worthy of your calling. And he's going to give us five characteristics, five qualities, that if we have these things in our life, and you might want to use the 10-point scale to gauge how you're doing on these five things uh, as well in your own life, to, that are the marks of a truly Christian life. By the way, just a side note, Uh, some religions are very prescriptive. They have tons of rules. Others don't. Uh, For example, if you're a deist, you have a vague belief in God, but you have no rules that you have to follow. On the other extreme, if you're an Orthodox Jew, there's 635 rules in the Mosaic Code that you have to follow to be an Orthodox Jew. Well, Christianity is somewhat in the middle. 
We don't have 635 rules. We have no dietary rules or anything. But we have these principles. Principles that Jesus shared with us, like the Beatitudes. And then principles that Paul shares with us through his letters. And so by, by adhering to these principles, then we're able to live that kind of a life. And so these five characteristics that I'm going to talk to you about this morning, by the way, even if God had never said you should be this way, I believe that when we go through them, you'll say, wow, I would want to be this way anyway. These are profoundly attractive characteristics. They're the kind of characteristics that make life good and worth living. I believe that they, they're all that way. Will Rogers, the humorist, said that we should live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. And so the way that we're going to look at living is Paul's suggestion for this. So the first one is um, lowliness or humility. Now this is interesting that this humility and lowliness was not even a virtue in the Roman world. There's many things that, were virtu- that they thought were virtues that Jesus also thinks is a virtue, like courage or truthfulness. But this was not considered a virtue in their world. It was considered part of a slave mentality. They looked on humility as something to be despised, cowering, cringing, servile, inept. Mark Twain once noted a man's humility, but then he said, but of course he has much to be humble about. That's how they looked at it, that people were humble because they had a lot to be humble about. But Jesus elevated this virtue and made it a characteristic of a Christian. It's kind of a weird virtue because it's so ephemeral. The minute you're convinced that you're humble, you're not. The minute you think you have it, you don't. It's like writing a book called Humility and How I Achieved It. It just doesn't work that way. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal on how the movie industry is plagued by pride and rampaging egos. This is not news, is it? The questions of how to resolve which star gets top billing, whose name appears first, and in what size letters is usually a huge battle. Months of delegate negotiations are sometimes required to deal with what one writer calls the conceit of the industry. To satisfy two superstars, a studio created two sets of screen titles and two sets of ads with one star named first in each. Then they had to run each ad exactly 50% of the time. As outrageous as that conceit of the industry may appear, the madness for status is epidemic. In our world, we desperately need to hear the words of Jesus, who said, no, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This whole striving to be first, all that kind of stuff. Now, humility consists of several things, but most essential is self-knowledge. It is the awareness of our faults and limitations. Socrates' simple injunction to know thyself is actually one of the most difficult things in the world. It is to recognize the ways that we fall short. 
We do that by seeing someone who is far ahead of us. You may think that you're a good golfer until you go to a professional golf tournament and you watch those guys play. You may think you're a good piano player until you watch a true professional play. Understanding our creatureliness and remembering that we are absolutely dependent on God. The second quality that he mentions is gentleness. Sometimes translated meekness. Same word that Jesus used in what he said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek word is praeotes, which has two meanings. The first is, is in Aristotle. You know, Aristotle always believed in moderation. And he said the perfect place of virtue is right in the middle between two extremes. That when you're right in the middle between two extremes, then you're at the virtuous place. So praeotes was given the meaning to be the mean between being too angry and never angry at all. The man who is Praotes is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. The kind of person who is kindled with indignation at the wrongs and sufferings of other people, but not moved to anger at his own sufferings. It's also the word that's used in Greek for an animal that's been tamed. Praotes is when you have a big, strong horse, but you can ride the horse. Because the horse has been domesticated. You're able to, to, to use that ox or that horse because it, it is no longer wild. It is useful now. So a person with this virtue has his or her passions under control. And because self-control is pretty much beyond our power, you could say that the person who has priorities is God-controlled in their life. The third thing that Paul mentions is patience. He says we have to have patience. Also translated long-suffering. A person is long-suffering. Maybe a good translation is just when you hang in there. You know, sometimes you say, how you doing? And somebody will say, I'm hanging in there. That's all you can do sometimes. And in my life, in ministry over the years, I've, not, I've known a lot of amazing people who have hung in there through some awful stuff. Whether it's a, a physical illness, a disease, to hang in there through in that struggle or being locked in a terrible relationship, uh, to hang in there or, or with children that are going off on the wrong track and causing lots of problems. To hang in there, to be patient, to be long-suffering. These are the, this is what Paul is, is advocating for us. To refuse to retaliate, to refuse to take revenge, is a person who is patient and long-suffering. The church that I grew up in, there was a hymn that we would sing about Jesus on the cross. And it was called, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. It went like this. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior, so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. Then the chorus. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels 
but he died alone for you and me. I remember when I would sing that song, I would think, man, good thing for those Romans, they had Jesus and not me up there on the cross. Because I'd have called the angels and say, bring your machine guns. We're going to mow these guys down. But not Jesus. Jesus was long-suffering. This is the spirit that bears insult and injury without bitterness or hatred. This is the person who knows how to suffer fools gladly. And then the fourth quality that Paul mentions in this text is love. He says you got to have love. Now, many people have remarked on the impoverishment of the English language when it comes to this word love. Because we use this one word for so many different things. We use the same word for, for our feelings about our spouse as we do for our feelings about fried chicken. I love my wife and I love fried chicken. But those are two very different things. They're very different experiences. Now, luckily, Greek is uh, a little better on this because they have four main words. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book um, on the four Greek words for love. The first one is eros, which, from which we get the word erotic, which is love between two partners that involves sexual attraction. There's the word philia, which is the warm affection that exists between friends. They have the word storge, which is usually uh, used to refer to love within a family. And then there's the word that Paul uses here, agape, the love for the stranger, love for those that you don't know. William Barclay says, the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence. If we regard a person with agape, it means that nothing he can do will make us seek anything but his highest good. Though he injures or insults us, we will never feel anything but kindness toward him. That means that Christian love is not an emotional thing. Agape is a product of the will. It is possible to love someone that you can't stand, that you don't even like, because it's not a feeling. It is an act of the will. Agape is the kind of love that compels a Christian to forgo bitterness, the option of revenge, and to search for the highest good for other people. The last thing that Paul mentions in this text is peace. He says if you have humility, uh, if you have gentleness, if you have patience, and if you have love, then the result of that is going to be peace. You're going to be able to live in peace with other people if you have these qualities. The fifth quality is the result of the presence of of the first four qualities. He says that the Ephesian church should preserve their unity and live in peace with one another. The peace, uh, the, the only way to do that is to give up having yourself in the driver's seat and to give that over to God so that you become born again. Then instead of yourself being the number one thing in your life, that God becomes the number one thing. If a Christian dies to self and Christ springs to life within our hearts, then comes the peace, the oneness, that is the great hallmark of the church. That is what Paul wished for the members of the Ephesian church. And that is what God wishes for the members of Piedmont Church today.
Amen.
thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We join this day with all the saints of all ages who lift their voices in the presence of God singing. Sunday to join together with Christians all around the world that are gathering around tables like this to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time that we remember the last night in his life when he gathered together disciples in an upper room and as they were there and they were having dinner and eating together he took the bread that was before him and said take this and eat for this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup that was there and he said, Drink this, for this is the cup of salvation poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let us join together in reciting the prayer that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 